Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study in the book of Philippians. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to reach out to the students in your life. If you have a college student who is headed to the University of Arkansas, let me encourage you to send them our way. We would love the opportunity to connect with them and to have them be a part of our congregation during their college years. We're located under two miles from Razorback Stadium. The college is right there. We love students and we would love to have them be a part of Calvary. Well, on today's podcast, as I mentioned, Pastor Kirk is sharing from the book of Philippians again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And on today's message, we're going to see the hymn of Christ. Let's listen together. Well, it's so good to see you today. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2. Our text today has been called the hymn of Christ. It's believed by many scholars that this particular passage records an actual hymn that was sung in worship by the early church. Some scholars even believe it predates those early centuries of the church that perhaps it was a poem that had been written even in the days of the apostles. And the apostle Paul saw fit to include these verses in or this poem in his letter to the Philippians. I'm going to be very honest with you. There's never a time that any preacher worth his salt at all, whatever that means, there's never a time that any real preacher is not nervous uh, when he steps into the pulpit to preach, to proclaim God's Word. Um, I am especially so today because though I have quoted this passage a thousand times or more and have taught through the book of Philippians several times and have referenced this passage on many occasions, overwhelmed by it this week, I wonder if I really even understand it at all. Oh, I know I do on one level. But I feel so inadequate to try to grasp it. And even more so, to seek to communicate it. I don't have the vocabulary 
I don't know that I have the ability to help you understand it. So I pray for God's help in that. And I pray that God will make you and enable you and empower you as hearers to hear and grasp even beyond my feeble attempts to talk about it. To put this in its context, Paul is talking about Christian unity. He is talking about how to live supernaturally. In fact, what he describes in the first four verses of chapter 2 is supernatural living for God's people to live in, in such a way that they put away all selfish ambition, that we put away all self-interest, that we put away all uh, conceit as it would motivate our hearts, which is the norm for human beings. And to live in such a way so as to put Christ first and to put others ahead of ourselves, to live in such a way in the church that a body of people like Calvary Baptist Church or uh, any other true gospel church could live with each other in such a way that they are so different from the world that it's unmistakable that God has done something in them and that they know something, they have something that the world is in desperate need of. And Paul said it is through that kind of unity that we are to, we are to strive, that we are to, to labor, that we are to work, that we are to stand firm in the gospel and in unity and to strive to advance the gospel in this world, realizing we'll suffer uh, persecution for doing so, but that would not deter, deter us at all from the ultimate goal of being the people of God in the world. And so he, he gives us this exhortation that we are to, to have the mind of Christ. He gives us this, this commandment. And then he gives us the example. And he gives us actually examples through the rest of this chapter. He talks about the greatest example, Jesus. And then he talks about the example of his own ministry. And then he talks about the ministry of, of Timothy and the ministry of Epaphroditus, that these are all people you know, and they are exemplifying this truth that I'm advocating, that I am encouraging you to have as well. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is the imperative. Remember we talked about imperatives and we talked about indicatives last week. We talked about those things that are commands for us to do and those indicatives that indicate to us why we can live that way and do that way. Well, he does that in this very first verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It is already yours 
in Christ Jesus. It's not something that's out there somewhere waiting on you. It is already in you. Now surrender yourself to this truth. Have the mind of Christ. It is yours in Christ Jesus. Understand, my friends, that when Jesus left the bliss of heaven, and he's going to talk about that, for the miseries on this earth, it wasn't just to save you and me from our sins. It wasn't just to give us an example of servanthood. Certainly it was those things. He did leave the bliss of heaven to come to the miseries of this earth in order to save us, in order to be an example for us. But understand, he came for so much more. He also came to reconfigure, to reconfigure the very inclinations of our hearts. He came to rewire us from the inside out so that the inclinations of our hearts would fulfill and be like his inclinations so that his mindset, his attitude, would also be our attitude. You have already been empowered to live that way as God's people. So looking at our text, verse 5 again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this passage can be easily um, discussed and looked at in two points. So this message has two points. And the good news is, we'll only look at one of them today. <laughs> Verses 5 down through verse 8 is point number one. The humiliation of Christ. Verses 9 through verses 11, Lord willing, next Sunday, the exaltation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. Paul explains to the Philippians the humiliation, the humbling, the stooping down, the willingness to submit to the Father's will 
and to surrender his life as a ransom for many. The stooping low and humility of Christ. Paul talks about this and explains it by contrasting the eternal deity of Christ and the human life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this is a story that is unheard of. Nowhere in the history of mankind other than the Christian gospel do you find such a story. There is nothing in mythology that compares. There's nothing in the world religions that even begins to be its match or its equal. This is a shocking story. This is an event that when it began to take place in heaven, caused no doubt the angels of heaven who were there and who had always done the bidding of God the Father would have caused even the angels of heaven to gasp in almost disbelief that the Creator would become a part of his creation, that he would stoop so low to be the created and then later would be exalted so high to be the Christ. And that's what you have in this story. You have in verse 6 the truth that Jesus Christ is eternally God. He always was God. He always is God. He always will be God. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the eternal God. And verse 6 tells us, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to, that he had to hold on to, something that he had to take and to keep for himself. The Bible is clear in its teaching from the beginning to the end that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. God. He was God in eternity past. He became God in the flesh. And then he is now God in eternity, the eternity to come. He has never ceased to be that. The deity of Christ, however, has been under attack since the very beginning of time. Since Lucifer, the fallen angel of heaven, Satan as we know him, since Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, he has been seeking to cause mankind to question the deity of the Lord Jesus. For instance, you know how that the greatest proof of his uh, deity being his resurrection from the dead. We've sung about it at least twice this morning already. 
that this resurrection of Jesus is something that is much denied. It is something that is rejected, that many in the world will tell us, listen, Jesus was a great prophet. He was maybe a great teacher. He was somebody to be admired, somebody to to hold up as a great example. But don't fall for that lie that he was God in the flesh. Understand, if Jesus was not God, then we have no hope at all. He is completely uh, useless and worthless. As C.S. Lewis would say, you have basically three choices with Jesus. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is the Lord. That's your only choice. The Bible teaches us that he was the very God. And Paul tells us he was God by his nature. He was in the form of God, in the essence of God. He was God within. That was the eternal and internal reality. He was God in form, and he was expressed externally as God, the one who is the word of the Lord. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus said to the disciples, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He was God by his very nature. But he was also God by his stature. He had equality with God, with the Father. Understand that Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus, before he came to this world, the Jesus of eternity past, the creator of the world, he totally shared the fullness of God's nature. He was not some category beneath the Father. He was not the first to be created by the Father. He was co-equal with the Father. He is eternal with the Father. Jesus Christ is eternally God in his nature and in his status. All that the Father had, Jesus had. All that the Father was, Jesus was. All that the Father has and is today, Jesus is and has today as well. Verses 7 and 8 tell us, tells us that Jesus, though he was eternally God, Jesus became fully human. Remember what verse 6 says. Though he was in the form of God, though he was equal with God, he did not consider that something he had to grasp, to fight for, to hold on to out of personal ambition. His godliness, his status, his relationship with the Father, he did not consider that something he had to dig his nails into. When it came time for Jesus to come to this earth and be born of a woman, the Father did not have to pry his fingers loose from the throne to get him to come. He didn't grasp at it. He didn't clutch at it. 
he let it go. This word grasp means, by the way, it's the only time this word's used in all the New Testament. It means to plunder, to prize something seized or greatly desired for personal advantage. He did not consider his relationship with the Father as something that he had to tenaciously hold to. His attitude was to the perfect, to surrender to the perfect will of his Father, and he's willing to surrender this place of special privilege in order to come to this earth. He was willing to surrender his glory. He was willing to surrender his honor. He was willing to surrender his prerogatives, his rights as God. He was willing to surrender the respect that was given to him in heaven. Nobody ever disrespected him there. He was willing to surrender his recognition, his influence, his privileges, his position. He was willing to even lay aside much of his power. Everything he had, he was willing to release, except who he was. Now, please understand this. While he emptied himself and he surrendered up all of these things, he did not surrender up being God. He did not cease to be God when he was born in Bethlehem. He did not lay aside his godliness to become human and then later to take up his godliness again. But he divested himself of his privileges in order to condescend to you and me. To stoop so low to walk among us. And Paul tells us he did this in two ways. Verse 7 tells us he did so in his incarnation. You understand what that word means. We talk about the incarnation of Jesus at Christmas time. He became flesh. He became flesh and blood. That which was spirit became flesh and blood. Verse 7 said, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And you must understand, and I have to repeat it, when it says he emptied himself, it does not mean he ceased to be God. It does not mean he ceased to be less than he was. Though he released his privileges of heaven, he did not become less of who he was. How did he empty himself? It said he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself by becoming something that he was not. He emptied himself by becoming like us, by taking the form of a servant. This idea of, of emptying means to 
drain out or abase or neutralize. And, and basically it is saying that by becoming flesh, by becoming flesh, he did not choose to act upon all of his power or all of his privilege or all of his prerogatives. He was the God-man, not half God and half man, not 75-25, not 90-10. He was 100% God while here, and he was 100% man. I know the math doesn't work. That's what makes it so special. He was the God-man. Not God indwelling a man. Of such there has been many. This is what G. Campbell Morgan, the preacher, said. You see, every one of us who are Christians, we are men and women inhabited by God, indwelt by God. But Jesus was the God-man. Not God indwelling man. Of such there have been many. Not a man deified that has attained or become God, of such there has been none in the history of man, except in the myths of pagan systems of thought. But he was God and man, combining in one personality the two natures, a perpetual enigma and mystery, baffling the possibility of explanation. Christ, who in eternity rested on the bosom of the Father without a mother, in time rested on the bosom of a mother without an earthly father. God, who in Eden's garden took from man a motherless woman, in Bethlehem's barn took from a woman a fatherless Man, Jesus, the ancient of days, became the infant of days, a baby as old as his heavenly father, but ages older than his human mother, Mary. Jesus, who created the angels, was made, according to the book of Hebrews, a little lower than the angels. Jesus, who said, before Abraham was, I am, was born 2,000 years after Abraham walked the face of this earth. Now, folks, listen to this. Historically, the church has referred to the miracle of the incarnation as the doctrine of of kenosis. That comes from the Greek word, the doctrine of kenosis. Kenosis is derived from that verb in verse 7, he emptied himself. The church formally stated this doctrine to defend this text against misinterpretation. It teaches that the incarnation was not Christ emptying himself of his deity or exchanging his deity for humanity. The kenosis was a sovereign self-renunciation. In the kenosis, Christ laid aside his heavenly glory. He did so willingly. 
and the independent use of his authority, his divine prerogatives, his eternal riches, and favorable position with the Father. But he never in the process, never did he ever stop being God. The Godhead is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Therefore, if Christ stopped being God, God himself would cease to exist. That is impossible. God is self-existent, eternal, and immutable. That means unchangeable. So Christ could never stop being God, but in the kenosis, Christ became something in addition to being God without becoming something less than God. He became what he had not been in his eternal deity. He became a human being because it was the only way to save human beings. Folks, I want to tell you something. The incarnation is the greatest proof that this is not something that human beings could ever dream up. How could you dream up such a thing? With all the wild imaginings of all the mythologies and the world religions today and the multiplicity of gods and pantheism and all the great uh, astounding things other religions teach, nobody could even begin to come up with this idea of a God becoming a servant, a human being, without surrendering his godliness, but becoming this dual person, the God-man, all God, all man, in order to redeem mankind from himself. So Jesus condescended. Jesus, the eternal God, took on human form. And Paul says the incarnation proves that, but not only the incarnation, also the crucifixion. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death of Christ is mentioned twice in that verse. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These statements teach his submissive nature and the sacrificial manner in which he came and submitted himself. The death of Christ was an act of submission. Folks, you have an appointment with death. Did you know that? Every one of you, you have an appointment with death. Did you know that the time and the day of your death has already been recorded by God. It is appointed unto mankind once to die and after death, the judgment. Now you can diet, you can exercise, you can live right, You can do all these things you want to do. You can even take those fruits and veggies pills they advertise 
on TV to the point of absolute nausea. I think it's a cult. But anyway, you can even take all of that stuff and your death is still imminent and it's still inescapable. But not so with Christ. Death had no control over him. Death had no claim on him. Death and the grave did not kill Jesus. He freely, willingly, voluntarily surrendered up his life to death, even death on a cross. It was not the plot of the religious leaders that did him in. It was not the betrayal of Judas that brought about his death. It was not the protest, crucify him, crucify him from the crowd. It was not the sentence of the Roman government, the Roman evil empire. It was not even the actions of the Roman soldiers who drove the nails in his hands and feet and pierced his side with a spear. It was Jesus who surrendered up his life. Nobody could take it from him. He said that himself. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down and I will take it back up. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, submissive, submissive to the point of death. He could have declared that his glory was too precious to disrobe for sinners. He could have declared that his position was too high to condescend to sinners. He could have declared that his power was too great to lay aside for sinners. He could have declared that his heavenly possessions were too valuable, valuable to part with for lost sinners. He could have declared that his blood was too good to be shed for sinners. He would have been right to declare that his hands were too holy to be pierced for sinners. He could have declared that his life was too sacred for him to surrender. But he did none of that. He did not do that. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He became obedient unto death. It was an act of submission. No one forced him to do so. But it was not only an act of submission, it was an act of sacrifice. Even even death on the cross. When the Bible says he became submissive to death, that is the manner in which he sacrificed himself. Even death on a cross describes the extent to which he was willing to sacrifice himself. If you remember crucifixion, was the most painful form of execution in the ancient world. 
It was cruel and unusual punishment. It was designed not to just exercise capital punishment. It was intended to do so in the maximum uh, way as far as painful suffering, ultimately dying by suffocation. Death by hanging, death by stoning, death by burning was considered an act of mercy compared to crucifixion. It was so painful, it was so awful that we have a word in our English language that has its roots in the cross of crucifixion. It is the word excruciating. It is an excruciating way to die. It was also a way that the lowest of the low were to be punished. The worst of the worst and the totality of Christ's sacrifice, his obedience, the extent of his obedience is shown to us by his death, even death on a cross. Earth has known no darker sin, history no blacker page, humanity no fouler spot than that of the Savior's crucifixion. That's the humiliation of Christ. Though he held a place of highest honor, the creator of God, who in his nature and in his status was, was equal to God the Father, never knowing a day of disappointment or pain or heartache in heaven, was willing to stoop so low so that the Creator became a part of His creation. The eternal and infinite became finite the one who existed before the universe existed and who spoke the universe into existence became the tiniest, most fragile embryo in the womb of a teenage girl. Creator, creature, and even at that, he did not come with great pomp, great recognition. Remember, he emptied himself of all of that. He became a servant to be despised and to be rejected and to be tortured and ultimately to die a death the creator becoming the creature so that he could die a death 
on behalf of you and me. He took your place. He took my place. We deserve to be despised and rejected by God and by man. In our flesh, there dwells no good thing. That's what the Bible says. I know we were created in the image of God. We are still capable of doing some good things in this world as the world evaluates that. But we have no power to move our lives one millimeter in the direction of heaven. We have no righteousness. Nothing in us deserved this kind of condescension by a creator God. Surely he has borne our sorrows. Surely he has carried our griefs. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Largely speaking, the world has cast him off as part of the refuse of a bygone era. But that's not the end of the story. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He is not just the creature. He is the Christ. Have you crowned him as that in your life? Have you bared your soul and your sin to him? Realizing that there is nothing you can do in your flesh to save yourself? Have you surrendered your life to the one who surrendered his glory for you? Paul says to us, it wasn't just to save our souls from a devil's hell. It wasn't just to leave us an example for our lives to follow, though he is that. He went through all of that, child of God, so that he might reconfigure the inclinations of our hearts, the bent of our lives, the way we think, the way we live, so that we would have the mind of Christ, a mind that has already been given to us in the new birth. 
Jesus summed this whole story up during the course of his life when he said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that your son Jesus was willing to stoop so low. Our minds can't grasp that. We don't have the ability. We don't have the intellect. Father, that's a truth that can only be received by faith, a faith that comes from you. Would you help us to see it? To at least begin to understand it? That Jesus did that in order to bring us to you. And I pray for that person, those persons in this service today that maybe have not yet experienced the cleansing of the blood of Jesus, that they would surrender themselves to you today and be saved. That we would have our hearts and minds reconfigured to be like that of Jesus, to be humble, to be submissive, to be willing to sacrifice even ourselves for your sake. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.